Okay, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 14. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 29 and 30, and then Matthew chapter 10, verses 11 through 30. Okay, um, so Jacob now um, is on the run from his brother Esau. His father has sent him um, north to Paddan Aram uh, in, in order to find a bride, uh, but his mother's kind of got the agenda that this needs to be done so that Esau doesn't kill him for having stolen his uh, stolen his blessing. Now, uh, if you haven't listened to yesterday's, um, I really recommend that you do that because there's some things today that are connected with that, uh, that you know, so it's important that you know what's going on with chapter 27 in order to to, to appreciate chapter 29. But, uh, but he comes to the land of the people of the East. <clears throat> so, um, and he looks and he sees a, a field uh, and, and there's a well in it. And there's these flocks with their shepherds. And, um, and, <clears throat> the, and it's time to water the flocks. Or, or it's, the time is approaching to water the flocks. So this is a well that the shepherds bring their flocks to, to drink from. And... Uh, he, he, he comes there, and <clears throat> the way that uh, the text explains that it works is that uh, the, the well is covered by this big rock, and probably to prevent anything or perhaps anyone from getting in there, the shepherds would wait until they're all gathered together, and so the work, they, they, so, so no, no one of them has to lift it by himself, and then they'd lift the, the rock together, and then they'd put the rock back over the the well when they were finished watering their their flocks. And Jacob comes up to these shepherds who are hanging out there waiting for their buddies to arrive, and he says, Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. Now notice how short they're being with him. They're they kind of have no interest in him. Um, he's like an annoyance to them almost. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, it is well. Oh, look, by the way, look, Rachel, his daughter, is coming, uh, i.e., why don't you go ask her? Why don't you go bother her with her your questions? Um, so here comes Rachel. And remember, when we looked at Genesis 24, I mentioned that the idea of a patriarch or an important figure meeting his future wife at a well is a type scene where you have all these common elements and the way that they are tweaked uh, gives you something important about the foreshadowing of what's going to happen. And we certainly see this here, because the, the feel of this part of the Jacob story is that he's in a land that is strange to him, and he's surrounded, he has no, he's surrounded by none of his nuclear family. It's only extended family, and people who don't really care for him, don't really care about the promises of God very much, um, and they're just uh, kind of doing their things, self-interested. And so the, the idea that Jacob is kind of alone and the people of the land um, are certainly no friend of his is foreshadowed a little here by the shepherds. Um, and, um, and note, too, that in order for these flocks to be watered, a huge rock has to be moved. Okay, so this foreshadows this immense obstacle that Jacob is going to have now uh, that is going to be placed in his way as a result of having come up here to the, the, 
the land of the people of the east. And uh, Rachel comes, and she's a shepherdess, so she's watching her father's flocks. And uh, and Jacob sees her, uh, goes up to her, and and he rolls the stone away by himself. Okay, so this this Jacob's got to do this like in, incredible feat in order for the flocks to be watered, just like he will have to do incredible feats in order to have a family um, up here. Uh, with his brother, his his mother's brother Laban, and uh, Jacob apparently uh, realizes who this is. He kisses her. Probably doesn't mean you know he makes out with her or anything. It's probably like a kiss on the cheek, a, a, a typical greeting. Um, and he tells Rachel that who he is, and um, and she runs and tells her father. There you have all the elements of the type scene. Okay, the. The flocks are watered. The, the woman goes and runs home and tells her family. And Laban hears the news. Now, Laban, remember, when he, was fir- when he first appeared in Genesis 24, he saw Abraham's servant, and he saw the camels. He saw the gold uh, bracelets that were on Rebecca's wrists and the, the ring that was uh, on her finger or perhaps in her nose. And he... And he, you know, the dollar signs pop up in his eyes and he, he looks forward to seeing uh, how he can prosper because now this man is involved in, in his life. And now he goes out and Laban goes, he runs, he embraces Jacob, he kisses him uh, and, and says, surely you're my bone and my flesh. So Laban realizes the kind of wealth that this family has um, because he remembers years back when... Abraham's servant came to him. But now Jacob's kind of empty-handed. And um, and for, for a guy like Laban, that's not good if you're looking to get something out of someone. And so Laban proposes this deal. He's like, why don't you, you're going to work for me. What are your wages going to be? So let's see what I can get out of him. And um, let's see what kind of work I can get get out of him. And Jacob tells us, loves Rachel. So Rachel is the younger of two sisters. Her older sister is Leah, and she's described as having weak eyes. Um, It's uh, a little difficult to pinpoint exactly what that means, Um, but but it's it's not, um, it's apparently not an attractive feature. Um, Whereas Rachel has, um, is, is beautiful to him in form and in appearance. And um, this beautiful informant appearance, by the way, in Genesis is not always a good thing, as well as in real life, right? Um, think about Jake, about Joseph, who is going to be, quote, a beautiful informant appearance himself and where that gets him uh, later on. And so <clears throat> Jacob says to Laban, I'm gonna, why don't I serve you for seven years and uh, then give me your younger daughter to be married to me? And so Laban's like, sounds like a plan. Let's do that. And so at the end of the set, and, and Jacob serves the seven years, and it says he loves her so much that it seems like a few days. Um, that's it's like I I would walk uh, five hundred miles and another five hundred to be the man who <laughs> walked a thousand miles to fall down at your door, right? Like I'll do anything for the woman I love. And then, understandably, at the end of these uh, 
these seven years, he comes up to Laban and he says, give me my wife that I may go into her. Probably not the best thing to say to your father-in-law um, when your your wedding is happening, but I leave it to you guys to discern that. Uh, for my time is completed. And uh, and and Laban goes and he, he has this feast, but then he takes his other daughter, who's going to be harder to marry off, right? So first of all, you're supposed to marry off the firstborn. And then secondly, Leah is not apparently a, a, that attractive. And so he's going to have a harder time. So he figures, <laughs> we'll get something out of Jacob. I'll, I'll marry off my daughter into this prosperous family. And so he he gives her Leah, uh, you know, under a veil. And, and uh, he brings her into the tent in the evening and it's dark. And he doesn't, Jacob apparently does not realize who he is uh, consummating his marriage with. And there's a bit of irony here, right? Because um, you have this link uh, between um, what Jacob did in chapter 27 when he deceived his father. Much of this part of the narrative is look at all that act of deception cost Jacob he decided to be a heel grabber to try to get ahead, even though he had the promises of God, signed, sealed, delivered, and yet he still felt he had to deceive his father and, and listen to the voice of his mother, and um, and now this is going to cost him. And so there's some irony here, because as Jacob took advantage of his father's inability to see, now Laban, his uncle, is taking advantage of Jacob's inability to see. And in the morning, verse 25 says, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob's like, ah, and he goes to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Okay, this is the pot calling the kettle black. Jacob has very much met his match in Laban. Uh, Laban is, is, a, is a shyster, um, just like Jacob has been, uh, but he seems to be better at it in some respects. And so these guys are going to be duking it out now. And then Laban says one of the most ironic things in Genesis. He says to Jacob, he says, Jacob, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Think of that, right? This idea that Jacob has connived and deceived in order to get ahead of the firstborn, his firstborn brother. Um, and uh, and now here is Jacob um, getting a taste of his own medicine, if you will. And so Jacob agrees to work another uh, week of years. Uh, the ESV translates it week, and I feel like that's, that's kind of confusing. Um, week in Hebrew is literally just seven. And so you know, by by calling it a week, it sounds in some places like he's just working seven days. He's he's working another seven years for Rachel, and then he's given Rachel in marriage, and um, uh, but but Rachel will also struggle with barrenness. Um, but Leah, however, the Lord opens her womb and she begins having children, and so she has the first four sons of Jacob. And uh, it's kind of important to note the order of birth uh, for later in the narrative. So the first one born is Reuben, and then you have Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So those are the first four sons of Jacob, and they are um, sons of Leah. 
And uh, and then uh, a break comes in her childbearing, and Rachel sees that she's got she's she's having trouble conceiving, and she comes to Jacob and this give me children or I shall die, right? This does not seem like a, like a happy family life. Like these family members are talking to each other in extremely short and rude ways, right? Uh, give me my wife that I may go into her. And now Rachel, give me children or I shall die. Um, and Jacob's ang- Jacob becomes angry. He, and he says, am I in the place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Like, what am I supposed to do, a- do with this? And at this point, think back to Abraham and Sarah, and think back to Isaac and Rebecca. They both struggled with infertility too. And what's the difference? What what are the different routes they took? Well, Abraham and Sarah initially um, came up with the solution: go take a concubine, and I will and and produce offspring through her, and she will be counted as as mine. She'll be counted as Sarah's. Then you have Isaac and Rebecca's solution. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and she conceived. And so it's like, all right, Rachel, which one are you going to go with? Are you going to be like Sarah was or are you going to be like Rebecca was? And unfortunately, verse 3, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf and I may have children through her. And so he does this and uh, two uh, additional sons are born to Jacob. You have Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah um, decides to do the same. So she's having trouble of late bearing children. And so she takes her servant Zilpah and she gives her to Jacob as a wife and two other sons are born and that will be Gad and Asher. And then you have this interesting story where Reuben, the firstborn of Leah, firstborn of Jacob, um, finds mandrakes in the field. And mandrakes um, apparently have some kind of sexual connotation. They're a a sexy fruit, if you will, Uh, either some kind of aphrodisiac or perhaps looked at as as a kind of fertility, good for fertility. It's a little unclear what the significance of them are. But they're clearly connected um, here as well as in other places with uh, with with love. Um, And so Reuben finds these and Rachel Start, Rachel and Leah begin this conversation where it's almost like they're pro, like like Rachel is prostituting her husband to her sister, um, his other wife. Um, by the way, this is another one of those examples where um, it uh, kind of um, bodes well for the historicity of the event because, of course, in later Israelite law, you are not allowed to marry sisters. Um, and yet here we have that. And so, again, if this is being made up at a later time and does not have historical reality behind it, it's very difficult to explain, right, that that we all come from a union that we're all forbidden to have. So, yeah, so so Rachel agrees to let Jacob lay it with Leah again in exchange for mandrakes, and, uh, and she conceives and bears two more sons. Issachar and Zebulun. And then finally, um, she bears a daughter. And there may have been other daughters as well, but she's the only one we're told about. And this is Dinah. Dinah will become uh, important in chapter 34 in a very tragic way, uh, also due to her father's shortcomings to Jacob's problems. Um, and then God remembers Rachel 
and gives her a son. And she names him Joseph, uh, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Um, Joseph is like the Hebrew word yasaf, which means to do again or, or to add. And, um, and so it's like, you know, let's, let's hope I could get some more now. All right. And then you get this like uh, really interesting story, and uh, it'll get completed tomorrow. But <clears throat> so Jacob comes up to Laban, and uh, <laughs> and he says to him, "Send me away." And essentially, Laban says, "No." <laughs> right? Remember back in chapter twenty-four when the servant wanted to leave Laban's household. What does he say to him? "Send me away, Shelacheni," and um. And, and, they, and they try to delay. And so, again, Laban is trying to get as much out of this man who is, seems to him to have been clearly blessed by God. Um, he wants that blessing to rub off, off on him. Like, look, and Jacob's like, look at, look at how well your flocks have fared under me. Jacob apparently is a very competent uh, shepherd. And so, so Laban's like, all right, we'll name your wages. What are, what are we, uh, what are we going to do this time? And Jacob, last time they had this kind of conversation, he got the short end of the stick, right? Laban deceived him and he, uh, and he wound up with the wrong wife. So Jacob names the terms now. And here's basically what's going on. Um, Jacob says, uh, let me, let me, um, build a flock of my own. Okay. So you've got all these, uh, you've got all these sheep and all these goats and, um, and, uh, basically they're black and they're white. Any that has a mixture on them will be mine. Any, any, any mixed ones, any, any speckled or spotted ones are going to be mine. And, uh, Laban's like, all right, that sounds, uh, that sounds really good. And um, Laban trying to to uh, to to uh, trying to uh, disadvantage Jacob here um, goes and he removes the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted um, and um, and all the black lambs, basically leaving Jacob just with white sheep um, and. Um, and he sets, he puts them away three days journey. So he tries to, um, you know, basically, uh, prevent any of the newborn, um, uh, of the flock from coming out speckled or spotted. And so Jacob does this thing that appears to be some form of magic that he thinks is going to work. And I'll say a little bit more about this tomorrow. So if you're like, well, what the heck is this telling us that magic is real or something? I'll comment on that again tomorrow. But for now, just appreciate what he what he's doing, or at least what he thinks he's doing. So he takes branches, <clears throat> and these are branches, and you could think of the branches as having a dark bark on them. Uh, I'm I'm a poet, and I didn't even know it. A dark bark, <laughs> and he peels slivers off of it so that the branches are speckled and striped, just like the sheep he wants to get are, uh, uh, um, would ideally be, and. Now, the sheep apparently uh, mate when it's time for them to be watered. Like, this is when they're relaxed and together, and if sheep are going to do their thing, then this is going to be when it's going to happen. And so, apparently, the idea that Jacob has, and again, I think this is him engaging in some form of, like, 
magical slash superstitious stuff. We don't really have any good parallels uh, of this in the ancient Near East, so we can only we can only offer conjectures here. Um, and he places so apparently, but the mentality is that what they look at when they're breeding will be what their offspring will look like. And so he places these striped and spotted branches in front of them as they're watering. And as they mate, uh, they're looking at these branches, or at least they're in their eyesight. And so he begins to produce this, this flock, this great flock of speckled and spotted sheep. And not only that, but he only does that when the stronger of them are feeding. Uh, so not only is he getting a lot, but the strongest ones are striped and spotted, and apparently it works. Uh, more on this tomorrow, <laughs> but um, ne- but at, at the end of the chapter, the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger would be Jacob's. And thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, and camels and donkeys. So Jacob becomes wealthy due to this this uh, ingenious method of uh, breeding and animal husbandry that he has he has cooked up here. So that's <clears throat> Genesis 30. Totally nothing weird at all about that story, right? No, it's difficult. And um, it is one of the more challenging stories in Genesis. Um, I have had to preach on it before, twice. And um, yeah, uh, I will kind of give a little, a few more thoughts on this tomorrow, though. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's look at Matthew um, chapter 11, verses 16 to the end of the chapter. So he's, Jesus is still addressing the crowds after John's disciples came, John the Baptist's disciples come to him. And he continues to address uh, similar themes, this idea, you know, remember from yesterday, uh, who did you go out to see? Um, a, a reed shaken by the wind. Who did you go out to see? A person dressed in, in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in soft clothing are in king's palaces. No, you went to see a prophet. And, um, and uh, then he says, uh, Jesus says, and backing up a little bit, um, that John the Baptist is the greatest of, of this old era, but in the new kingdom that I am uh, ushering in, even the least there will be, um, will be greater than, than even John the Baptist. And this shows the priority, of course, of the kingdom that Jesus proclaims over the one that John proclaimed. And then you have this statement that I didn't explain yesterday, but is a little bit confusing. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Uh, this is a difficult expression, and it's it's hard to have certainty exactly on what, on what it means. But essentially, it is a translational issue. Um the the Greek word that is used here, suffered violence, can be understood as more than one kind of form. For those of you maybe who have a little Greek, it could either be a deponent, middle, or a passive verb. And uh, of course, if it's suffering violence, it's it means like others are doing terrible things to it. Um, however, I think uh, the way it is typically used, the more typical, and even in the ESV, which I'm reading for, you have a, a um, you have a, a footnote, or has been coming violently. So suffering violence versus coming violent. The kingdom is the thing that's violent, 
Okay. And, but violence might not even be the best way to capture it. Maybe, um, the, the kingdom of heaven is now advancing full force. Nothing can stop it. Okay. From the days of John the Baptist until now, um, you know, the, the, the blind are healed. The lepers are cleansed. The, 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 right? Like, and, and, and the poor have the good news preached to them. The dead are raised. Um, stuff is happening. We're rocking and rolling. Um, and violent men take it by force, or at least try to take it by force. So the idea is that you've got others. So it's a little bit play on the concept of violence. So the kingdom of heaven advances like gangbusters, but those who are violent, um, attempt to make it their own, attempt to hijack it. Here, you would think of people like Herod. Uh, you would think of people like the Pharisees. You'd think of people perhaps like the Zealots, um, those who <clears throat> who were not opposed to doing violence in order to deal with the problem of Roman oppression, what they viewed as Roman oppression. And so... Um, so he's, I think he's like contrasting how the kingdom is advancing, and then those who seek to have the kingdom, but not the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to establish. And and note the contrast there, right? Because John is confused. He's confused about what kind of kingdom is this going to be? And Jesus wants to remind people, like, you, you didn't go to see a reed shaken by the wind. You didn't go to see someone in soft clothing. The kingdom is not that kind of kingdom. It's not the kind of kingdom with people with cushy homes and and nice clothes and everything like that. This is the kingdom of God, and the, the, the world is not worthy of this kingdom, okay? Um, yeah, and all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and, um, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Read the end of Malachi to learn about that. Um, the, again, the forerunner of the Messiah is, is, is likened and even called Elijah there. And uh, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he starts comparing this generation, this this generation who doesn't get it. I guess this could be the theme of Matthew 11, right? If uh, For those who don't get it, okay, uh, or getting it <laughs> would be uh, a good way to kind of encapsulate what's going on in this chapter. Um, th- th- this generation is like children sitting in marketplaces and you know, we, we played a flute for you and you did not dance. We played a, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So in other words, we're doing these things and you're supposed to respond in this way. Okay. When, when we play a flute, you're supposed to dance. Um, when, when we, when we sing a dirge, you're supposed to mourn. Um, and, uh, but you didn't do those things. You're not doing what's expected of you, Jesus. Um, and, and 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 to confirm that that's what he means by that, look at the next verse. For John came neither eating and drinking, and they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Okay, so they're saying that this generation is like chill is like these children in that this is what we expect the Messiah to do, but you're not doing it. This is what we expect the forerunner of the Messiah to do, but he's not doing it. Okay, they've got their heads on backwards. They don't get it. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Another good way to translate that would be to say vindicated. The the what is truly wise, and we've been in Proverbs a little bit so far, right? Is is vindicated by 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 its outcome. So see what happens. And then he goes and he denounces some of the unrepentant cities that his disciples had been sent to, Corson and Bethsaida, and then even Capernaum. And um, 
And again, this is another one of these passages that suggest that God does not view all sin with equal weight. Again, as I said when when I mentioned this a few days ago, that does not mean that everything we think is severe is is more severe. God also thinks is more severe, but it does indicate that um, that 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 God does see a difference between we might say lighter sins and more serious sins because he's saying things like if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for them than for you. It will be more more bearable on the day uh, for for Sodom than it will be for you, Capernaum. Right? There's a greater judgment because you are explicitly rejecting the Messiah. Even what they did is not on that level. We, you are held accountable according to the knowledge and the grace that's been offered to you. And if you are offered a, an amazing amount of grace, it's an amazing amount of accountability for rejecting it. Um, and um, yeah, so and the, the other thing that I'll flag about this statement here is... Um, it is, uh, it is not that these people did not have a reason to believe, right? Because he says if the mighty works done there, they would have seen that as a sign and they would have listened. Um, where Mighty works were done in you, cities, and you still did not receive them as signs that I am indeed who I am, uh, who I am saying that I am um, and I'm worth following. And, and then... Jesus finishes up the chapter by a, a prayer um, to, to God, a thank, a prayer of thankfulness, where he thanks the Lord from hiding the, the, the treasures of the kingdom of heaven from the wise and understanding, right? From those who are supposed to get it but don't, and instead revealing them to little children. Notice that, that Jesus often refers to his disciples as little children. Um, he he. He talks about the the least in the kingdom in verse eleven earlier, and then um, uh, um, we'll we'll certainly see him talk this way again. Um, notice at the end of chapter ten, he talks about um, giving one of these little ones a cup of water. That's how he tends to refer to his disciples, his his followers, not just the twelve, but all of us. Um, and here in this paragraph, interestingly. The, um, the, the idea of belief, of faithfulness, of, of uh, fidelity to Jesus is seen as something that, that God initiates, right? Like, so he hides it from the wise and understanding um, who in, in their own sin have rejected him. That's not to say that they are not responsible um, or that God is in any way responsible for their unbelief. Um, and he reveals it to little children so that it needs to be revealed to them by the father. And this is his gracious will. Um, All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Okay. Uh, There is a, the, the choice here is God's um, of, of who to choose and who to make his. This is a difficult doctrine, and this is not the last time that we will talk about it in the New Testament, but we do really need to grapple with this idea that God chooses those whom he is going to reveal his son to. Um, but nevertheless, the call goes out to all. And so 
I love how Jesus's prayer kind of turns into an address to those who are standing there. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Of course, you you hold that up as absolutely true, um, but you also hold up the narrow road passage, right? It, it is hard. The gate is 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 not open to everyone. There, the road is narrow and it and it's difficult, and few are those who find it. Um, and so there is a sense, as I said then, in which following Jesus is the hardest thing in the world, but there's also a sense in which following Jesus is the easiest thing in the world. And uh, both of those things are true. Okay, uh, that is going to be it for today. Look forward to joining you tomorrow. So until then, take care. God bless you. Bye-bye.